0: Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey. All things Dominic Dunn. Where nothing is linear and everything is connected. And investigators, we're gonna have a little fun today in our journey, a nick in time, if you will. Friends, we are at the most absolutely perfect time to recenter our picture around our man Dominic and begin to include him. Within the story we're telling, 1957 is exactly the year to get him into the scene, as well as all of the players that connect into Dominic Dunn's life in Hollywood to get back to the last days of Marilyn Monroe. See, it's all connected in the land of Dominic Dunn. We have talked about in this podcast, the theme of community, the theme of colony. We have watched all the connections work through over the decades of previous time periods we've covered, but alas, Dominic Dunn will fully land in Hollywood in 1957 and will spend the next two decades of his life here. Those next two decades have some incredible highs and some really, really rotten lows. However, with where we are right now, the late 1950s, it is a most excellent time to take stock, introduce a few more characters, and provide a little bit more of the backstory. This episode is a nick in time and one that will provide a foundation for other things coming in the rest of our journey. Let's investigate. <music> Dominic Dunn will make his first visit to Hollywood in the mid-1930s when he visits his maiden aunt Harriet, who took her star-loving and adoring nephew to the Brown Derby and on to see all the stars' homes on the trolley buses. We've covered all that. And y'all remember Dominic as a kid is not a kid like the other boys. His father makes him suffer a lot for the differences that Dominic has, which I think at some point will turn into his greatest strength. Our man Nick was born October the 29th, 1925, leaving him in prime age to be drafted for World War II, which in fact he was in his senior year of high school. Before Dunn departs for the war, he has an encounter that will change his life he will meet with a fortune teller. For my lovers of Dominic Dunn's fiction out there, this particular story might ring a bell. In the Dominic Dunn novel, The Two Misses Grenvilles, Billy Grenville, our stand-in for Billy Woodward, will visit a fortune teller in the novel, predicting the date of his death. This is one of the real-life inspiration incidents for the writer that actually makes it into Dunn's fiction. What do they say? If you want to really know an author, read their fiction, not their memoirs. I'm going to let Nick tell you about this particular life-changing moment himself. This is coming from two different writings about his experience. The first is from his piece in Vanity Fair called Surviving the Darkness from 2005. On the night before I was shipped overseas in World War II, I went to a fortune teller in a town in Massachusetts near Camp Devon, my embarkation point. I was 18 years old. Drafted during my senior year of boarding school, I was the kind of kid who never made the team, and I was scared. I had become almost obsessed with the idea that I was going to be killed in battle. When by accident, I passed a cheap little place with a sign out front for psychic readings. I felt compelled to go in. A woman with rouged cheeks was sitting at a table covered with gaudy shaws, and there was a crystal ball on the table. She gave me a routine 10-minute reading and then asked if I had any questions. I was very shy in those days, and I stuttered, but I somehow got the words out. Will I be killed in the war? She was surprised at the question I could tell, and I no longer felt as if she were just brushing me off. She stared intently into the crystal ball and said something like, no, you won't be killed. You will have a long life. Terrible things will happen to you, but the last part of your life is going to be the best. Fair enough. The second entry, the retelling is mostly the same, but with a few more details that add a little bit to the scene in our imagination. This particular entry is taken from Vanity Fair from What a Swell Party he wrote from October 2008. On the last night before I was shipped overseas during World War II, I went to a fortune teller in the little Massachusetts town next to Fort Devons, which was the Embarkation Center. I was 18 years old, scared and convinced that I was going to be killed in the forthcoming combat. The fortune teller had heavily rouged cheeks and wore cheap perfume and her raspberry colored scarves needed cleaning. (laughs) She gazed deeply into the crystal ball in front of her. She told me I would not be killed in the war. She said I would have a long, eventful and complicated life, but that last part of it would be the best. And so it has been. To fully appreciate those latter years, which we will cover in detail as we continue through our podcast journey, it becomes essential to rewind a bit. How does Dominic Dunn get into Hollywood? Who are the players in this time frame in his world? Who is he making connections with? Where are those connections being made? Because investigators These are Dunn's subjects and sources for his coming third act, the last part of his life that was predicted to be the best all those years ago. It is his connections in his first act in Hollywood from 1957 throughout the next two plus decades that will provide Dominic Dunn the basis, the foundation to flourish in the future. And, oh, he will flourish. But let's get us to the third act through the second act. want to continue on here from the What a Swell Party He Wrote entry. And here I will let Dominic Dunn remind you. I didn't start writing until I was 50 years old, although I had been observing the lives of the rich and famous for 40 of those 50 years while trying out different occupations. In the early 50s, I was in on the ground floor of a brand new industry called television. I started as stage manager on the Howdy Doody show, which was blissful, and went on to the dramatic shows like Robert Montgomery Presents, which had a different movie star brought in from Hollywood each week to try out the new medium. I worked with Grace Kelly, Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, and Joanne Woodward in the years before they became stars. All true. Continuing here from Dunn, a couple of times I went to mass and communion with Grace Kelly at the Good Shepherd Church in Beverly Hills, and she took me to my first Hollywood premiere. I think I can safely say that I was the best stage manager in live television at NBC in New York then famous stars such as Humphrey Bogart and Frank Sinatra began to request that I be flown out to Hollywood to manage their first dramatic appearances on live television. Bogart in the Petrified Forest and Sinatra playing the stage manager in the musical version of Thornton Wilder's classic American play, Our Town. Bogart, whom I worshipped, used to have me to his house to run lines after rehearsals and once invited me to a movie star party he and Lauren Bacall were having, where Judy Garland and Frank Sinatra sang. I was the only nobody there. In 1957, CBS moved me and my family to Hollywood, where I worked on Playhouse 90, the sensationally popular 90-minute weekly drama. Then I became the vice president of 20th Century Fox. Marilyn Monroe was the queen of the lot. Oh, Marilyn certainly was the queen of the lot. Let's talk about a few reminiscences of Dominic Dunn's about Marilyn Monroe through this time. This one retelling is from the documentary about Dominic Dunn's life called After the Party. Nick talks of Marilyn Monroe showing up late at a party at Romanoff's. In a green sequin dress supplied by the studio, Dominic Dunn recalls how happy she was in those days, and he will say this was in the days before her sadness. Dominic Dunn will recount one night where Marilyn Monroe shows up late to the party, and Audrey Wilder and Janet Cordova will ask Marilyn Monroe how she does her famous walk. Marilyn Monroe proceeds to line up all the ladies at the party at Romanoff's to show all the women how she does her famous walk. Dominic talks about how all the ladies were in a line following Marilyn and what a delightful scene it was. Dominic Dunn will also recall Marilyn going to another famous restaurant, La Scala. La Scala was a favorite of Kennedy's when he was in town. At La Scala, Frank Sinatra has his very own booth with a private phone line installed. These are the days before Frank Sinatra will soon enough open his new restaurant. But Marilyn does go to La Scala, and when she goes, she does not sit in the show-off front room with Frank Sinatra and his private phone and all the other stars. But Marilyn would go to the back of the place, the quiet, shady part of La Scala, the secluded part. Oftentimes, she would be accompanied by her publicist, Pat Newcomb. Pat Newcomb is one of the first people there on the scene that tragic early August day when Marilyn Monroe died. This is actually a terrific time to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors this week. See you on the flip for a bit more rewinding. Oh my, there is so much about to happen within the weaving of our tapestry, but there's one more bit that I think is imperative to connect in The Missing Piece before we get Dominic Dunn to Hollywood in 1957 in our next episode. There's a little bit of a story and the key to the development of our man Nick, as well as a few other powerful connections to talk about. Want to back up one or two more years here, getting Dominic back to New York City in the mid-1950s, back to his time at 30 Rock NBC. This next section, I will be using part of the most wonderful biography of Dominic Dunn by friend of the pod, Robert Hoffler. Hoffler's epic work, Money, Murder, and Dominic Dunn, A Life in Three Acts. You can check back to Done and Done Episodes 15 and 16 to hear our exclusive interview with Robert Hoffler. Taking this from the chapter Marriage and Puppets. After Howdy Doody, Dominic quickly climbed the NBC ladder to become stage manager for the prestigious Robert Montgomery Presents, one of the first TV shows to perform original hour-long dramas live on the air. Every week at 30 Rockefeller Plaza in Studio 8-H, Dominic performed a ritual he loved from the moment he first said the words, One minute, Mr. Montgomery. Robert Montgomery called back at him from across the studio. Thank you, Dominic. At which the actor-producer host would look into the camera and say, And good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Dominic knew it. Well, I was the star, he exclaimed. Robert Montgomery Presents and other shows Dominic Stage managed at NBC introduced him to the kind of theater talent that would soon turn into movie legends. James Dean, Walter Matthau, Steve McQueen, and Joanne Woodward performed, as well as some stars no longer in demand in Hollywood. Actors like Claudette Colbert, Ginger Rogers, Roddy McDowell, and Tone. Dominic especially enjoyed taking his younger brother John, a student at nearby Princeton University, to parties in Manhattan populated by his new actor friends. The teenager did not know Grace Kelly from Geraldine Page, but those showbiz introductions would be useful to John in his future as a screenwriter, not that he ever felt obligated to return the favor. Frank Sinatra was an exception to the star-to-be or former star rule in live TV of the mid-1950s. Fresh off his Oscar win for From Here to Eternity, Sinatra headlined NBC's 1955 musical version of Our Town, an assignment that turned into a stage manager's worst nightmare when the star took a dislike to crew and cast including the very young Paul Newman and Eva Marie Saint, and refused to show up for the dress rehearsal. Sinatra and his frazzled stage manager would meet again in Hollywood, much to Dominic's grief and humiliation. I followed Dominic from afar at NBC. He was a big deal, said Liz Smith. In the mid-1950s, the future gossip columnist worked on the network's weekly travelogue, Wide Wide World. Dominic was always kidding around with me, how we'd started together in television, but I don't think he really remembered me from then. After a brief stint in television, Liz Smith began her long career in journalism, starting as an assistant to Igor Cassini, who wrote the Charlie Knickerbocker gossip column for the Hearst newspapers. Cassini was to New York's high society what Hearst's Luella Parsons was to Hollywood. Whether Dominic knew her or not at NBC, he avidly read Cassini and Smith's copy in the newspaper. No articles fascinated him more than the three published under Charlie Knickerbocker's byline in 1955. That year, a chorus girl turned society lady Anne Woodward shot and killed her husband, Billy, heir to the Hanover National Bank fortune. The Knickerbocker column ran three in-depth stories on the deadly incident and then dropped the scandal as if it had never happened. Three decades later, Dominic would speculate in his Romanocle, The Two Mrs. Grenvilles, that Hearst put a stop to Cassini writing about the scandal, even though Liz Smith, who had worked for the powerful gossip, doubted such high-level intervention ever took place. Cassini didn't want to be ostracized at Hearst, and Hearst didn't want to be either, said Smith referring to the newspaper's access to New York's high society, which quickly closed ranks around the Woodward family. I don't ever remember her stopping Cassini. Dominic, for his part, saw it differently. He saw the conspiracy, the power play, the intrigue, the dark side. He often did when it came to money and murder. If he looked like a quote-unquote big deal to Liz Smith in the 1950s, Dominic felt somewhat less so when old acquaintances like Gore Vidal came to visit him at Rockefeller Center. Vidal brought his so-called stepsister, Jacqueline Kennedy, they shared the same stepfather, to NBC one day during rehearsals when Dominic, on his hands and knees, was spreading tape on the floor to simulate the boundaries of the scenery. He felt quote-unquote, like a mick, despite wearing his J-Press sport jacket, gray flannel slacks, Brooks Brothers shirt with a button-down collar and striped tie. Unlike most stage managers, he overdressed. He even felt like a mick when the very Irish John O'Hara came to visit the studio for all five days of rehearsals on the Robert Montgomery Presents adaptation of the writer's first novel, Appointment in Samara, published in 1934. Everyone working on the show knew that they were doing something bold for 1950s television. Like the novel, the TV adaptation of O'Hara's novel would end with the suicide of its hero, Julian English, a victim of the hangover generation of the 1930s. Dominic admired O'Hara not only as a writer but as an Irish American who exuded total confidence with his fame, his talent, and his ethnic heritage. The novelist also wore the most beautiful tweed suits Dominic ever saw on a human being. O'Hara and his wife watched from a viewing room while the actors performed live before the cameras. Afterward, they came to the studio to greet Robert Montgomery and make their way to an uptown party to celebrate. Dominic later wrote a friend that O'Hara saw the yearning in his eyes and motioned for him to join them that night. Dominic felt compelled to say no. He knew his place. He was not invited. O'Hara shrugged and said it didn't matter and quickly extended an invitation to be his guest. It surprised the young stage manager when everyone at the party treated him not like a TV minion but as if he belonged, quote-unquote, and they were so nice. Although he never saw O'Hara again, Dominic made it his major goal in life to get himself invited to more parties of that caliber. He only had to move to an even more fabulous place. He only had to move to an even more fabulous place. Goodness, friends, it is coming sooner than you know. Dominic, 1957, we're leaving him here, entering the decade of his 30s with a wife, a toddler, and a newborn, and his life will never, ever be the same. 1957, and Dominic coming on out to Hollywood is where we will begin our next Done and Done episode, continuing through this Nick in Time arc. Thank you so much for listening in today and for telling your friends, for your kind reviews. Hey, a big shout out to JMCP. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words and review. Thank you all for your trust in me as a storyteller and doing my best to do justice to the magnificent Dominic Dunn and his world. This is the fun stuff and how it all begins to come together in ways you never imagined. If you want a little bit more content in the meantime that truly does all connect into our investigation, please check out patreon.com slash done and done for two or five bucks a month. You get ad free episodes plus bonus episodes over there too. Oh friends, this investigation so much fun. Thank you again, everybody for tuning in and for your support. Got some surprises coming for you this week. And until we meet again, for more threads in our tapestry, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done Podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.dunanddun.com. See you next week, friends.